How are you guys doing? Hopefully doing okay. Um, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at H2O uh, at the university here in Cincinnati. Um, the last time I preached was over Labor Day, so uh, may not be a familiar face to you, um, but every so often throughout the semester, throughout this year, you will be hearing from me on Sundays as well. Um, I've been on staff here with H2O uh, Church since 2013, after I, <laughs> yeah, after I graduated uh, from UC with my bachelor's. Um, and so next summer, uh, the summer of 2022, I'll be leading a team to Buffalo, New York, uh, to plant another college-focused church at the University at Buffalo. That's why there's a flag here behind me. So if you've ever been wondering what's that for? Why do we have a Buffalo flag? That's why. Um, and so part of my role over the next nine months or so is to begin to transition out, to, pre to begin to prepare uh, our team to plant a church in Buffalo, and then also to prepare this church to send another church plant uh, to Buffalo. And so we really believe that God's going to bless that. We really believe that God is um, going to use us in our efforts there to extend his kingdom, to invite more people into a relationship with him. Um, and so uh, why am I telling you this? Well, there's a couple reasons. First, because uh, we really believe in being a sent church, being a sent people, uh, people that are consistently prioritizing God's kingdom and pursuing mission. Uh, for some, that may mean living sent in a very local manner, living sent to your classrooms, living sent to uh, your workplace, things like that, um, and, and really kind of trying to be a, uh, a vessel for God, a, a witness for God in those places. Um, and, and honestly, I would love for many of you to consider during your time here at UC what it might look like to prioritize God's kingdom above and beyond the dream job, right? And, and to consider where he might send you, right? And he might send you uh, to something just like this church plant, to Buffalo. Or he might send you overseas for some time, for a year or two after you graduate, just to share the good news about Jesus with people that don't have free access to him. Whatever God's plan uh, for you is, I hope that you prioritize it. Uh, the second reason I share this with you is because the door is not closed for some of you to come alongside us and join us in Buffalo. Like I said, we'll be moving in uh, the, the summer of 2022, but, uh, you know, would love to or for some of you to consider um, grabbing a job in that area and joining us uh, whenever that may be, 2023 and beyond. So um, there's my pitch. You hear that every so often this year as I'm sharing this news with you. So in any case, uh, we've been uh, in Romans. We're going to continue to go through Romans on Sunday mornings. Uh, last week, Grant covered the end of Romans 1, where Paul uh, talks about the sin and the wickedness that humanity displays. He especially digs into the reality that even if you did not grow up in a culture uh, uh, that understood who God is, such as a Jewish culture, that you are still without excuse before a holy God. And Paul shares that like creation itself bears witness to the existence of a creator and implies that, that from creation, there's a kind of truth that we all know about God and have chosen to reject anyway. Paul details all kinds of different ways that human beings do this, but ultimately sums up these ideas as exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And so Grant talked last week about all kinds of trades uh, that, that, that we may have made or trades that maybe we should make. 
And, and so Paul, you know, in that, he's talking about exchanging the truth of God for a lie and really worshiping and serving what has been created instead of the creator himself. And so this is the beginning of Paul's uh, long explanation about the good news about Jesus and why we need him. And so if you read just the end of Romans 1 and only the end of Romans 1, uh, you'll probably end up feeling not encouraged, I would say, right? And um, that's because this is the beginning of a long argument. And so we're going to continue to work through that um, as we're digging into Romans. Today, we're going to read and examine Romans 2. Um, and so we're going to read the entirety of Romans 2. A lot of reading there. Try to, to continue to pay attention. I know it's a lot of reading. Um, that's where we're going to be. And so again, Paul had just got done explaining all of these sins that humanity has committed against God um, and exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Uh, and, and so before we read, um, some groundwork to help you understand what we're reading. At the beginning of this chapter, he talks about doing the same things. And that's, he's referring to those very same sins that he just got done detailing, right? And, and then he continues to reference something called the law a lot. And so if you're not familiar with what that is, um, I'll explain a little more afterwards, but you can think of it as just the moral law that God gave to Israel. Okay, so keep that in mind as we're reading. Hopefully that helps you as you read this text. We're going to pick it up right in verse 1 in Romans 2. It says this, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think any, any of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek." for there is no favoritism with God. For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So, when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say, you must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? 
For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. Okay, so that was a mouthful. Lots going on here. Uh, So in this part of Paul's letter, he talks a whole lot about the law. I feel like that was almost every other word that that we were reading there. And if you're not familiar, that may be confusing, like I was kind of explaining before. Uh, If you assumed it was referring to, like, the laws that the government has passed and things like that, obeying the governmental law, uh, you might have been confused the entire time as to what he's talking about here. Paul's referring to the law that God gave the nation of Israel, particularly and especially their moral law. This includes things like the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses, things like telling people not to kill, or telling people not to steal, or telling people not to commit adultery. And so this is what Paul is talking about anytime he says the law in the book of Romans. And so Paul finishes talking about all the wickedness of humanity and how we've made up our own gods, and how we've replaced the truth about God with a lie because we prefer it, and because we like to be our own masters. And he details all kinds of sin and all these things that the human race has done as a part of our disobedience and rejection of the truth. And then he says, in verse 1, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. And so in this, Paul, I think, is assuming that the Jewish people among this Roman church that he's writing to might be congratulating themselves at this point. They just heard all about these sinful people that that Paul characterizes in Romans 1, and and it's possible that they feel like they're thankful, you know, for not uh, being like that or, or even thinking that they're like that. And so in this chapter, it seems like the goal of Paul is to communicate that the contrary is true, that they are also guilty, that it's not just people that are living out of these very obvious uh, uh, outward expressions of sin that are far from God, but that all people are by default far from God. That those who aren't religious and just completely give themselves over to sin are not necessarily in a worse position than somebody who grew up with a religious background or family. And so when Paul is talking about Greeks or Gentile, it's probably uh, easiest to understand these as non-Jews, Right? And so when Paul makes these comparisons throughout Romans and talks about the Jews and the Gentiles or the Jews and the Greeks, uh, a similar comparison in our day and age might be like the churched and the unchurched, you know, the religious and the irreligious, the, you know, the church kids and those that didn't grow up going to church. And so as we're digging in here, uh, that's how we're going to talk about it because I don't think many of us uh, in here grew up Jewish by culture or heritage or uh, that that is your religion, but if you read this text, you'll find the parallels between Jews and the church are very obvious, and so um, that's kind of the framework we're working with. So the, f- the first 
main point that I want to dig into, and that's, that's, I think, just really threaded throughout this chapter, is uh, he will repay each one according to his works. God will repay each one according to his works. Uh, Paul says this in verse 6, and, and when he does this, he's quoting the psalmist uh, in Psalm 62. He's also quoting a proverb. There are probably some other places that this is said throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and you'll see Paul do this often because he really wants these people to see, wants the Jewish people among his audience to see that the gospel that he's preaching is not one that he's making up, but that it's always been this way. Right? And you'll see that more throughout this uh, book, throughout this letter. But Paul says this, and in the following few verses, um, he, he is essentially saying that those who are righteous will go to heaven and that those who are unrighteous will be punished by God's wrath. And I think the religious people reading this will take this at face value, and I think Paul intends that to be so. Right? He's really trying to show them something. And, and so even for you, as, as you read this, um, and depending on where you're at in your faith journey, uh, this idea might align with your philosophy about God and your understanding of God. The idea that if, if I'm basically good, I'll go to heaven. But if the bad deeds in my life outweigh the good, then I'll be punished in hell. Right, this idea that, but, you know, alas, I am indeed a good person, so I have nothing to worry about. Right? I have good morals. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I've never killed anyone. Sure, I've lied or I've, I've done selfish things before. I, I said a curse word uh, uh, the other day when someone cut me off in traffic, you know? But that my sins pale in comparison to the sins of many other people. And as long as I feel like I stack up well enough against others, I'll be good. As long as I'm better off than them, then I'm in good shape when I stand before God at the end of my life. If we take Paul's statement at face value, I think that's where we can arrive. It's where, where we may land. We land in a place of where essentially how we view favor with God is in terms of scales. That, that on this side we have all of my good deeds and on this side we have all of my bad deeds. And as long as the good outweighs the bad, then God will give me a pass and I'll be able to dwell with him in eternity forever. You know, Paul... He's talking a lot about Jewish people here. And, and I mentioned earlier how a good comparison, I think, to Jewish people um, during this time is, is just a lot like religious people, um, a lot like uh, the church kids, if you will, right? Just anyone that might have grown up with a culture or a family that would uh, really make them consider God, you know, go to church, think about these kinds of things. And, and I think there are some church kids in here that need to hear what Paul is talking about. Because every year, new people come around to our church from all kinds of different backgrounds. It's great. And, and we have a lot of people that come around to our church that grew up going to church. And, and within those church kids, I think are two types of people. And the first type is, is a genuine Christ follower, someone that really loves Jesus and wants to pursue him and follow him. And, and then there's the other type that's just like some of these Jewish people in Rome. They live a basically moral life. They work hard in school. They want a family someday. They'll probably baptize their kids and take them to church. But they don't have a real relationship with God. And they've never turned from their sin and never had a genuine faith in Jesus. Because what they think that means is that they pray a prayer and they try not to cuss, steal, or lie. And I'm here to tell you that if that's you, 
you are still dead in your sin. And this is what Paul is desperately trying to communicate to the Jewish people. He's saying, yes, God is going to repay everyone according to their works, according to their deeds. That those who are righteous will be awarded a place in heaven, that those who are unrighteous will receive God's judgment in hell. And guess what? You are not righteous. Your works are not good enough. Your good deeds don't stack up. Not on your own. You see, he's not trying to affirm people that if they do enough good works, they'll be justified. No, he's trying to say, yeah, if you were able to do enough, you would be justified. If you were able to do enough good deeds in your life, you would be justified before God. That's true. But you are not able. You can't possibly do enough. And it's not close. Like, it's not even close. God is perfect and holy. And even at our best, we are still imperfect human beings tarnished by sin. And so Paul is desperately trying to show these people that, yeah, you grew up in church, but you're not better off. You may know the moral law better than many other people, but you still have failed to obey it. He goes on to say even that those who didn't grow up in church, not exactly off the hook. Right? He says, so, this is in verse 14, so when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, right? So people that didn't grow up in church maybe didn't, weren't taught these things. So, right? They don't by nature have it. When they do what the law demands anyway, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And so Paul is saying that by doing good, by understanding that it is good, we are proving that there's a kind of moral law that's inherently understood by us as human beings. There's something inside of us that just understands that God created us in such a way that we would know and that it's written on our hearts that there is good and evil. So a, a small example of that. Uh, we only have one child in our congregation right now, uh, and she's probably not old enough to exhibit this. But even in children, one of the most interesting things, I think, is that parents uh, tend to unanimously agree that uh, they did not need to teach their, their kid, their child, to do wrong. Right? I remember um, watching one of my nieces interact with her mom, and uh, she was still very young, less than a year old, couldn't talk, right? Um, not even talking yet. And she was mad about something. And I just remember uh, witnessing her, um, mom was holding her, and she hit mom in the face in an act of defiance. And you could just see on her face that like th this was an act of rebellion. Like she knew that what she was doing was wrong and she did not care, right? <laughs> and so just like that, Paul is sharing with us that, yes, this is true. All of us are held accountable to God's law because we all have some innate understanding of good and evil. There's something inside of us that knows that that's true. And yet, every one of us has rebelled against him and disobeyed him. Some of you grew up in church, some of you did not, and all of us have willingly rebelled against God. And so, 
Paul goes on uh, after this to discuss that as a result, the Jews, these people that were given God's word and, and had a better understanding of who God was, um, because they didn't act like it, they were a terrible example to the people that were non-Jews, right? The Gentiles and things like that. And then, finally, he talks about circumcision. Uh, now, I hope that I don't have to explain to you what circumcision is. <laughs> and if you don't know what that is, uh, ask the person that came to you don't, or came with you. Uh, don't ask me. <laughs> I'm not going to share that with you. Uh, you can Google it later if you really feel like it. Um, But listen, you might be wondering, you might be wondering, why on earth, why on earth is Paul talking about circumcision in the middle of this argument, right? That seems a little bit random, okay? So uh, as a, a little bit of background, early on in Jewish history, God commanded his people to have their sons circumcised as a reminder of his covenant with them. And uh, when God commanded this of a man and woman named Abraham and Sarah, um, they had been well past the normal age for bearing children. Children, And so uh, God still promised to build a nation out of their, their son, out of their offspring. And so they told them, or God told them to circumcise their sons um, as a reminder of this miracle, right? That they were well past that age when, when normal people would be able to bear children, and yet God uh, allowed them to have children anyway, and that he would build an entire nation out of it. And so um, through this, uh, they would realize that their very existence was because of God's miracle, was because of God's work. Now, this also became something that people used to identify themselves as Jews, that being circumcised not only reminded them of God's miracle and Abraham and Sarah, and that they exist as a result of it, but also as a reminder that they were part of God's special nation of Israel. And so, Paul was speaking directly towards this because uh, circumcision was one way that Jews really felt that they belonged to God's family, right? That, that it was their birthright or that they were somehow special uh, or, or superior to others as a result of this. So when he's talking about this, he's essentially arguing that their circumcision is useless and that it does nothing to save them. Because while it was intended to be this external outward reminder of who they were, uh, they haven't acted like Jews, Right? They haven't lived like Jews. And they've disobeyed the moral law. And so what he's saying is that this outward, external thing does not matter if you uh, haven't had what he describes as being circumcised of the heart. And, and we're going to touch on the heart stuff in, in a minute, but um, I, really, I really want us to see just how similar this can be to many of us in the room. And so what I want you to consider is just how much stock you place in the outward, in the external, right, in these visible aspects of your faith instead of the inward, right? What are the things that you value? Do you value the outward? Do you value the, the visible things or the inward? Another way to put this would be, uh, uh, or a, a good way to consider this is, do I care more about what people think about how close I am with God, or do I care more about being close with God, right? Do I want to look close to God, or do I want to be close to him? And this is kind of what Paul is speaking to here, right? That's why he closes out this chapter by saying in verse 29, on the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. I, I know for me, um, sometimes it's really easy to fall into this trap of, of playing church. Right? I can do all kinds of church stuff. I can say the right things. Um, 
but really what we ought to be after is to be truly close with God. And there's no way that substituting the, the false externals um, of looking close with God, substituting that for genuine closeness, genuine intimacy with him, is ever going to be worth it. And this is true of all people. For some of us that are real followers of, of Jesus, we can easily fall into this trap, right? Um, and so for us, it's good to consider, are we, are we genuinely seeking the face of Jesus or are we just trying to play church? Right? Are we just trying to go through the motions and, and do the things that seem good? Because I think it's common for us to, to drift towards a kind of Christian moralism where we're more interested in those externals than we are in actually God himself. For others, kind of going back to the church kid stuff, um, and this is super common, there are people in here who feel like they're in a good spot with God because they go to church on Sundays, they act more moral than the other people in their dorm, uh, and because they pray sometimes before meals. And I'm telling you, you can do all of that and be just as far from God as the person who curses his existence and he's sleeping around on the weekend. Listen, you can't fool God into thinking you're a righteous person. God knows more about the goodness or the wickedness of your heart than you do. You're not going to be able to stand before him and fool him into thinking that you're a good person. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he, he gives this famous sermon um, you can find it uh, in Matthew. And um, it seems like he's giving advice on how to live in a righteous manner. He talks about all kinds of things. Um, he says things like, you've, if you've committed adultery, um, or I'm sorry, you've committed adultery if you have lust in your heart. He says that you've even, you may be thinking, oh, I just don't have to sleep around. But he's saying, if you even had lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And he says things like, you've committed murder if you've had anger in your heart towards somebody. Now, what is Jesus doing here? When, when, he's, when he's teaching things like this in the Sermon on the Mount, what is he doing? Why does he say these kinds of things? Because at first glance, it can seem like he's giving us just moral advice. But that's not it. He's showing us something. He's showing us that the standard of righteousness is so much higher than we can imagine and that we can't meet it even if we tried. So, anyone in here avoided being angry all their life? Anyone in here avoided lusting before? Right? You can't meet the standard. And the thing is, 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 is this week and last week, and, and, and there will be a few weeks um, coming even in Romans, uh, where we're going to be going through things like this, and it, it may seem depressing and hopeless, right, as we're going through these things. Um, but the reality is that we can't stop here, and we're not intended to stop here, right? This is in the middle of, again, a, a long argument that Paul is trying to really flesh out the good news about Jesus. And so if we stop at this idea that we're all broken and sinful, we're never going to arrive at the reality that Paul is really, really trying to show us. It's this reality that, that we 
have to understand our brokenness and our sinfulness in order to understand our need for a savior. You will never cry out to God and ask him to save you if you don't understand that you need him. And when we understand our need for him, only then can we cry out to him, ask him to save us, and ask him to forgive us of our sins. This, this is the circumcision of the heart that he's talking about, right? The true repentance. This idea of being really just brokenhearted about your sin and your shortcomings and desiring for God to change you and asking him to save you. And when we do that, when we do that, God will begin to do a work in us that's unimaginable. He, he wants to renew you. He wants to restore you. He wants to make you more like him. He wants to change you into the person he's designed you to be from day one. And he wants to use you. He wants to use you to extend his kingdom. He wants to use you in your classrooms that you would be a light to those around you, to invite others into the same family that you're a part of. He wants to be near to you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Right? He wants to be your friend. Imagine that, that the God of the universe wants to be your friend, despite all of these things that we just talked about. And Jesus says that, that in that relationship, in that uh, friendship and in that intimacy with God, that's where the life is. Right? That's where life and life abundant is. Knowing God and walking with him. And so, listen, <laughs> today's been heavy. Um, there's, there's a lot going on here. Um, if you need to talk about any of this, <laughs> with somebody, or if you need prayer, again, in the, in the back corner here of the room, there's, there's an area for prayer. We're going to spend some time in worship and prayer through music, um, but if you need that, by all means, right, like that's, that's what we're there for. Our staff are going to be there uh, today so that if you need to talk about something that's especially sensitive, you can. So, um, listen, I, I love you. God loves you guys. Let's, let's, let's pray and let's um, worship together. Lord, um, God, you're so good to us. You're so good to us, and, and we don't deserve that. That's what we've been looking at today. That's what we looked at last week. That's what I think we'll continue to see throughout Romans, is that it is only by your mercy and grace and your love for us that we can know you and, and, and have a relationship with you just like we were designed. And God, we thank you for that. God, none of us deserve it. There's not a single soul in here that deserves that. And so, um, Lord, we just pray that you'd be with us. Lord, I, we want you to minister to us. God, convict us where we need convicted. Give us peace where we need peace. Lord, you're the best thing that's ever happened to me. I know that's true of so many people in this room. Lord, help us to be uh, people that live like that, that draw near to you, that really want to be people that actually have a close relationship with you and not just people that look it. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. <laughs>